This episode of Mollyful Answers is brought to you by PayPal Credit. Summer is here, so make the most of it by booking your travel plans or purchasing your favorite gadgets with six months special financing on purchases of $99 or more with PayPal Credit. Learn more at paypal.com slash fool. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. Also, thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and we're joined, as always... We, the royal we, are joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, bro. Hello, the royal Robert Brokamp. And we're also joined this week by Maury Beckman with five financial statistics that scared the heck out of me. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Allison, what's up? Well, you know what's up? It's your birthday today! <laughs> oh, it is. Happy yes, birthday! True. Thank you so very much. Uh, so, of course, yes, it's it's your birthday as we are sitting here in the studio taping, but as our listeners are listening to it, your birthday happened in the past. But, um, like so many things that happened in the past, so have most of your best days. Did you know that, bro? <laughs> yes, it's all downhill from here. Well, everyone. so for what's up today, we're going to talk about all the ways that you have peaked. All the ways well, I'm over the hill. What you can do about that, yes. <laughs> all right, but here's the good news, because at your age, do you want to tell people how old you are or no? I just turned the big five zero. All right, so at your age, yes, you have already peaked, but you're also about to trough. And that's the crux of an article. Your professional decline is coming much sooner than you think by Arthur Brooks in the July issue of The Atlantic. Hey, let's dig into the science a little bit about when life gets good and bad, but then good again if you're smart about it. I can't wait. So, let's start with the research of Jonathan Rausch, who wrote The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Rausch says that happiness of most adults declines through their 30s and 40s and then bottoms out in their early 50s. See? You're about to hit the worst of it. That's right. And the thing about that, that's like international. It's, It's true across the world, and whether you had kids or not, this pattern is seen everywhere. So the good news is you hit that trough and then you head back up for another 20 years at around 70. Um, and some people get happier. Some stay steady at 70. But men in particular tend to get more depressed. So what's going on here? Why are you getting more depressed, bro? <laughs> so Brooks points to abundant evidence that suggests that the waning of ability in people of high accomplishment is especially brutal psychologically. So think about Olympic athletes who have to stop competing, that kind of thing. I mean, which makes sense. Your body can only do so much for so long, but what about your mind, right? So according to research by Dean Keith Simonton at UC Davis, success and productivity increase for the first 20 years after you start your career on average. So if you start your career in earnest at 30, expect to do your best work at around 50 and then go into decline soon after that. When did I join the Motley Fool? What age was I? 30. Almost exactly <laughs> 20 years ago. It's going to be 20 years ago in like a week or two, in a, right? In a few, yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. So Benjamin Jones, a professor of strategy and entrepreneurship at Northwestern, um, spent years studying when people are most likely to make prize-winning scientific discoveries, key inventions, that kind of thing. So looking at major inventors and Nobel winners going back more than a century, he found that the most common age for producing a magnum opus is the late 30s. 
Oh, pickles. He's shown that the likelihood of a major discovery increases steadily through one's 20s and 30s and then declines through one's 40s, 50s, and 60s. Are there outliers? Yes, of course. And I uh, plan to be one. Thank you very yes, much. Yes, of course. But the likelihood of producing a major innovation at age 70 is approximately what it was at age 20, almost non-existent. So, Philip Hans Francis of the Erasmus School of Economics looked at 221 painters, 100 classical composers, and 90 Nobel Prize winning authors, so creative minds, and found that they were most often between 30 and 40 when they produced their most celebrated works. So, why does your brain become less innovative and creative? Well, let's look to British psychologist Raymond Kettle. In the early 1940s, he introduced the concepts of fluid and crystallized intelligence. And you and I talked about this a little bit. Right. Fluid intelligence is the ability to reason, analyze, and solve novel problems. It's the stuff of innovation. It's the highest relatively early in adulthood and diminishes starting in one's 30s and 40s. Crystallized intelligence, in contrast, is the ability to use knowledge gained in the past. We're talking wisdom here. And boy, do you look wise to me, bro. <laughs> Wisdom tends to increase through one's 40s and doesn't diminish until very late in life. There are many exceptions, but the most profound insights tend to come from those in their 30s and early 40s, the best synthesizers and explainers of complicated ideas, that is, the best teachers, tend to be in their mid-60s or older, some of them well into their 80s. I would say that's comparable to being a podcast host. I'm just guessing, but I would say that's about the same thing. So, so you all have about 15 good years left of bro on the podcast. There you go. <laughs> all right, so what are the secrets to living a happy life after you peak? The secret is keep making yourself useful to the world by passing on what you've learned. Uh, Brooks, again, in the Atlantic article, talks about purposefully focusing less on professional ambition and becoming more and more devoted to spirituality, service, and wisdom. So he kicked off this article by talking about how he was sitting on a plane and he hears a man behind him grumbling to his wife. And he's grumbling. He can't see who this man is grumbling to his wife, but he just hears him. He's eavesdropping. And the man is grumbling basically about how he's miserable and he just wants to kill himself. He's useless. No one needs him. He's anymore. useless. No one needs him anymore. Wait, did you read the article? I did read the article. You weren't supposed to read it, so I, I can tell you all about it. Oh, no. I thought you sent it to me so I could be prepared. No, I sent it to Anyway, <laughs> the point is, our listeners probably haven't. So the author of the article turns around and sees that the man who has just said this, at some point he learns that the man behind him who was grumbling about how he's useless and he just wants to kill himself, he was saying it to his wife, by the way, who's like, no, stop it, you don't mean that, um, is this very famous, well-known man who had accomplished many great things in his life. And in fact, when he was getting off the plane, the pilot was like, sir, you've been a hero of mine since I was a kid. Um, Did you try to figure out who it was, by the way? I googled around and I couldn't find it. Any luck? No, no. Hopefully we'll find out eventually. Like it would have been like some it sounded like someone with a military a prestigious military career. Yeah. Someone so someone older with a in their 70s or 80s with a prestigious military career. So this is what kicked off this article and this is how we come back around to say that this man who was grumbling in the back seat was probably not the back seat it's a plane so <laughs> somewhere behind the author focusing still focused on his pre- professional ambition and what you need to do as you get older is to instead focus on spirituality service to others 
sharing what you've learned and wisdom. So another way to look at it, according to another guy named Brooks, um, this is New York Times columnist David Brooks, is to stop focusing on your resume virtues and start focusing on your eulogy virtues. Because no one's going to stand up at your funeral and talk about how you clawed your way to middle management, but they will stand up and say how kind and giving and thoughtful you were, you were and all that good stuff that you're not going to be around to hear. Oprah did a good podcast with David Brooks about that. I highly recommend it. Yeah. So, that ended uh, on a kind of positive note for your awfulizing birthday boy. <laughs> hey, let's look at some other ways you've peaked. Best age for learning a new language, seven or eight. The ability to remember new names, 22. Muscle strength, 25. Bone mass, 30. Understanding other people's emotions, 40s and 50s. I still got some good time you left. You got in some me. good, yeah. Uh, you got some good empathy left in you. Pay scale found that men's salaries peak at 48 and women's at 39. Uh, on the plus side, your vocabulary peaks well into your 60s and 70s, and psychological well being peaks at 82. So, not only do you have many happy years ahead of you, you'll have a growing vocabulary to communicate how happy you are. And that, bro, is what's up. This episode of Motleyville Answers is brought to you by PayPal Credit. If you have any big purchases coming up, like trips, hotels, home goods, or just about anything, you can use PayPal Credit and enjoy six months special financing on purchases of $99 or more. PayPal Credit is a digital, reusable credit line built into your account with PayPal. You can buy now and pay over time. PayPal Credit is great for big or unexpected expenses, and it can be used anywhere PayPal is accepted. Applying is easy. Just answer a few quick questions, and you'll know within seconds if you're approved. To learn more and apply, go to paypal.com. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. That's paypal.com. And thanks to PayPal Credit for their advertising support of Motley Fool Answers. Lori Backman joins us this week. She's a personal finance writer for Fool.com. You may remember her from some previous episodes, including Five Retirement Myths Debunked and other other stuff. We've talked about other stuff. We talk all the time. We do. So, in her line of work, a lot of surveys and studies flow into her inbox. So, who better to share some of the scariest statistics that are out there around personal finance and retirement? So, we have five of them. Is we that do. correct? Yes. All right. We're just going to go through them. We're going to jump right in. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's do all right. Them. Be ready to get scared. All right. All right. Hold Woo. on. Hold on. <laughs> the first one comes from Go Banking Rates, and it is that one third of workers 55 and over have less than $10,000 saved for retirement. Right. That's a problem because. Basically, once you get to retirement, you want to have enough money to basically replace about 70 to 80 percent of your former income to live comfortably. Now, there's wiggle room with that percentage if you're willing to really downsize or downgrade your lifestyle, but that's really what you're aiming for. Social Security, meanwhile, replaces about 40 percent of the average worker's pre-retirement income, so clearly there's a pretty sizable gap there to fill, and $10,000 or less is not going to do it. Obviously, if you're sitting on 10000 or less in retirement savings in your 20s, that's not such a bad place to be. But in your mid to late mid 50s or, or over, that's, that's problematic. Um, one thing to say, though, with regard to that stat, because I always like to be very transparent about these stats, that figure might speak to the amount of money that Americans have or don't have in an actual retirement plan, like an IRA or 401k. It doesn't necessarily speak to 
what sort of assets they will have access to in retirement. So, for example, you could have someone sitting on a no mortgage $600,000 home that maybe they're planning to sell and buy a cheap $100,000 condo, and all of a sudden that's that's cash that they can use in retirement. So we'll be fair and just kind of qualify that. But I would say that for anyone who is in his or her mid 50s and above without much, virtually none, you know, retirement savings, um, start start doing better. Maybe cut back on some expenses. Uh, get a side job. There's another stat out there, and this is a this is a more encouraging one. 14% of workers with a side hustle do that extra work for the express purpose of funding a retirement plan. So maybe you, you're used to a certain lifestyle. You don't want to cut back on so many expenses when you're older. You feel you've earned it. Do something else. Get a side job. Um, find something you like to do and monetize it. Incidentally, you can then take that side job with you into retirement and work part-time in retirement to generate some income to perhaps compensate for your lack of savings. So definitely something to explore if you're kind of late in your career without much savings to you know, fall back on. Right. And, and going with the Social Security stat that you said, I mean, the number one thing anyone can do who is behind on their savings and they've already reached their 50s, early 60s, is delay retirement. Right. You delay your retirement. And by the most powerful aspect of that is delaying Social Security. Exactly. You, you get know? an 8% boost in your benefits for each year that you delay past your full retirement age, which, depending on your year of birth, is either going to be 66, 67, or somewhere in between. And you can do that up until age 70. Once you're 70, there's no point in delaying because those delayed retirement credits don't accrue anymore. But if you're looking at a full retirement age of 66, and you wait until 70, you're basically just growing your benefits all those years. Let's move on to our next scary stat, and it comes from the Federal Reserve. And that is, 40% of Americans can't cover a $400 emergency expense. Right, yeah. Um, and again, you know, I think the intent here is that 40% couldn't just withdraw $400 from a savings account. Doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have $400 worth of assets somewhere, but, um, but the fact of the matter is um, those people would need to borrow the money or sell something to come up with that money, um, and that's a problem. I always say the number one financial move you should make, this should trump all other moves, build an emergency fund. Because life has a way of messing with us. You know, if you own a home, there are just about a million things that can go wrong. And I would know because I've had like 500,023, you know, happen to me in the last 10 years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You own a car, something could happen. You could get hurt. You could wind up in the hospital with a huge bill on your hands, or you could get laid off. So there's just a, there's there's many, many reasons why you need an emergency fund. Ideally, you want at least three months' worth of living expenses in the bank. That'll tide you over for a period of unemployment, or conceivably, it should be enough to cover just a big bill that your paycheck can't. Um, where will that money come from? Again, cut expenses, You know, get yourself a second job to, to ramp up your savings. You don't have to do it permanently. You can push yourself to work on the side on weekends, on evenings for you know, a year, build up that safety net. And then if you want to stop doing that, that's fine. But you really need that cushion. Because what you don't want to do is land in a situation where you've got a bill on your hands that you can't pay, and you're charging it on a credit card. Doing that means racking up costly interest. 
It also means potentially damaging your credit, because the more of your available credit you use at once, uh, the more it can eventually hurt your score. So there's a couple of bad things that might happen if you're forced to charge a bill on a credit card. The interesting thing about this is that, to me, $400 is not a lot of money when it comes to emergencies. Right. And in a previous episode, we cited a stat from Bankrate that did a, they did a survey, and then of the people who had an emergency, the average cost of that was 3750 yeah. yeah. And you think yeah. of car repairs, home repairs, or something like that. Um, and when we had talked about this earlier in the year, we did it in the context of the federal government shutdown. Um, and living in the D.C. area, we all know people who have been affected by this. I was at a party Saturday night with a guy who was in the State Department. He's shipping off to Afghanistan for a year. Uh, and talking to another guy who used to be in the Secret Service and is now an investigator with the SEC. You know some interesting people. Yeah. Well, for, my first question was, how do you get from the Secret Service to the <laughs> yeah. SEC? Turns out the Secret Service, when it was formed, it was to investigate counterfeiting after the Civil War. Hmm. It wasn't until McKinley's assassination in 1901 that they started protecting people. Regardless, like here's a guy who th- I'm sure thinks he has a pretty safe, steady job, but we got to the topic of the shutdown, and he said the only way we survived was because we had an emergency fund. Mm. And I'm sure they needed to spend more than $400. So I think if, if the Fed were to look do this survey and increase that amount, the numbers would be even scarier. Yeah, yeah right. absolutely. All right, our next scary stat also comes from the Federal Reserve. So, 10 years ago, student debt was $600 billion. And do you guys want to guess where it hit last year? You already know. Already we know. know yeah. 1.5 trillion. Ouch. That is insane. More Ouch. than credit card debt, more than auto debt. Second only to mortgage. 600 billion 10 years ago, 1.5 trillion last year. Yeah. Right, kind of ridiculous. I mean, part of it has to do with the fact that college costs have just been inflating ridiculously through the years and a lot of people have no choice but to borrow privately for college when they met, you know, federal loans are more affordable. They come with fixed capped interest rates, but there's a borrowing cap on what you can borrow and a lot of private colleges, you're looking at far more than what you can borrow federally. So people resort to private loans with ridiculous interest rates, with variable interest rates. They just get caught up in a cycle where they can't get out of that debt. And as a result, you know, when you think about the people who have a lot of student debt, we, we, we tend to think of like 20-somethings, maybe 30-somethings. There's, there's tons of people who carry student debt into retirement, actually, mm. which is scary. Um, and part of the problem with having that much debt, aside from it, monopolizing a chunk of your income, which you don't want it to do, is the longer you carry it, the more you put yourself at risk of falling behind. And then if you become delinquent on your student debt, it can hurt your credit. If you just stop making your loan payments because you can't swing them, you risk having your wages garnished. If you're in retirement, you risk having Social Security garnished. So it's a bad spot. It's and you a, can't chapter 11 student debt away, right? Like you, it's very difficult to get out of. It's very hard to get it's out very, of. You can't you can't chapter 11 it because when you when you chapter 11, you're basically reorganizing your personal debts. Um, if you qualify for a chapter 7 bankruptcy, which is a little bit harder to qualify for, in most cases you still can't discharge your student debt. In some really rare cases you can, like if you can prove that there's absolutely no way that debt will ever be payable. Say if you're like permanently disabled, maybe, or disabled to the point where you really can't earn the income it would need to pay off that debt, 
then there are exceptions. But for the most part, don't plan on bankruptcy as a solution to getting rid of your student debt. Um, you know, obviously, the important thing to do is to try to get ahead of your loans, make extra payments into your loans early on so that you're able to get rid of them sooner. Um, and if you can't do that, which is the case for a lot of people, at least try to make your monthly payments so that you know it doesn't hurt you in other ways. If you took out federal loans, you've got some options there because borrowers have certain protections. Um, you can get on an income-driven repayment plan where your loan payment is calculated as a percentage of your income. Um, you can even defer payments under certain circumstances. These aren't necessarily great fixes because they don't they don't address the fact that you still have that debt to pay off. You're still not going to get out of paying it off. Um, but it's a better option than falling behind. A good option to figure out what your options are is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, they have a great website that you just put in your information. It gives you the different repayment options and things like that. But the bottom line is, it's very difficult to get out of that debt. Fortunately, more and more employers are offering as a benefit like we'll help you pay off your school loans. Yeah, that's it's a big still one. small but growing. It's only about four percent of employers, but more and more companies are getting into it. Fidelity has un, uh, rolled out a program that will help employers manage that type of debt. And then, of course, there's uh, the way to prevent it, and that is for those of you who have not yet gone to college to find some other way to pay for it. Um, and we are actually coming up on. 529 Day. Did you know this? No. Oh, because it's fi- oh, 529. May 29th oh, is National 529. 529. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, great place for that is savingforcollege.com. You just see, you should always start with your state's plan, but there are other good plans. In fact, they just rolled out their latest ratings of the top 529 mm. plans. So Right. And that, some states actually also offer you, because 529s, you don't get a, it's not like a 401k, you don't get a tax break for contributing. But some states do offer tax incentives at the state level, so that's a little bit of savings you can get there too. Yeah. Recently, um, the philanthropist Robert Smith offered to pay yes. the debt for all the graduates at Morehouse, which is insane. I wonder if that'll become like a more regular thing. But I think it, it certainly could be a factor in what and who colleges choose right? to speak at their right. graduations, <laughs> and all the graduates sitting there hoping, hoping that they'll like, hear. Come them. on, come on! I feel like it's going to be a big letdown, kind of like you know, you go on that one episode of Oprah where everyone gets a car, and then you go on another, you know, someone else goes on another episode, and they're like, come on. Come on, come on. And it's like, you get a frying pan. Yeah. Like, yeah. She never so yells was, at you to look under your seat. Yeah. It was quite impressive. I mean, the, the average kid graduates with $37,000 in school loans. But the, about this story, they said that the, his grant is going to be worth about $40 million. 400 kids are graduating. So that says those kids are graduating with like $100,000 wow. in debt. Yeah. So huge. Huge benefit. I love. It. I don't know if you've read the speech. It's pretty good. When he started, he started off in life as an engineer, and he talked about how he learned to be a great investor by basically learning the scientific process. And he said, "You got to embrace the grind. You got to grind away to learn these things." And the other thing was, make sure you call your mom. Don't text, but call your mom. Oh, yeah. definitely call your mom. Yeah. All right. Our next scary stat comes from Jenworth. The average annual cost of a nursing home is between roughly $90,000 and $100,000. Annual cost. Annual cost, oh. right. It's it's ninety. It's more like 90 if you're willing to have a roommate, if you want to 
funk solo. Oh, don't we all want to have I mean, a roommate come on, in can, those years? Right? Can you imagine you're 87 <laughs> years old and it's like, here's your new roommate, Bob. You know? Uh, yeah. So he's so cranky. Yeah, have fun. Yeah. And you know what? These they are just like averages. It. They might like the <laughs> company. You never know. That's true. That's true. That's true, actually, because because companionship is important. But I mean, these numbers are ridiculous. <laughs> they're just averages. So in some parts of the country, they're higher. Um, nursing home care is, I think, what I'll call probably the most extreme form of of long term care, meaning it's the costliest, and you know, it's the people who need the most help that wind up in that scenario. There are less expensive alternatives if you can do an assisted living home. You might pay. I think the average is around forty-eight thousand dollars a year, which is which is a bargain compared to a nursing home. Um, But yeah, the prospect of long-term care—it's really expensive. An estimated seventy percent of seniors, sixty-five and over, need some type of long-term care in their lifetime. Now that can be just a couple months worth. It doesn't necessarily mean years and years. Um, But you also have these extreme cases of people with either Alzheimer's or other conditions where they're in a nursing home for years and um, paying for it is a struggle. Medicare won't pay for it. Medicare will not cover what's considered custodial care, which is basically help with just daily living functions. So if you don't have an actual diagnosed or documented medical condition, you just need help dressing and bathing and functioning, you're out of luck as far as Medicare goes. Um, And given the cost of long-term care, I highly advocate for getting a long-term care insurance policy. Um, Best age, I would say, to do it is probably in your mid-50s, maybe early to mid-50s, depending on your health. Obviously, you don't want to be paying premiums for too long, but at the same time, by applying then, you not only increase your chances of getting approved, but you can snag a long-term discount on your premiums based on your age and health. Yeah. You mentioned uh, home equity earlier, and that's another recourse for some people, whether it's you sell the house or you get a reverse mortgage. With a reverse mortgage, if you're 62 or older, you can access anywhere between 40% and 70% of the home value. The thing is, you still have to be living in the house. Mm. So reverse mortgage is great if you need home health care and you just need someone to come in and do some of the so-called activities of daily living. Once you move out, then you have to pay off that loan. but and that is one right. one possible solution for a lot of people who don't have the cash lying around. Did right. this study go into how many years, on average, someone can anticipate spending in a nursing home? Uh, I don't know if the study did, remember. but on average, it's 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 somewhere between two to three years, I okay. think. So, all right. that could, yeah, that's pretty costly. And, and I think yeah. I, I do remember reading that I think for the average sixty-year-old couple, um, you could get a policy. I think your premiums would be about $300 a month, and that would give you roughly $150 a day worth of coverage. So let's do some fast math. So basically, it couldn't cover a nursing home, maybe about half of a nursing home, but it's something. Obviously, the flip side to that is being able to swing the premiums. But um, I think if you're in a situation where you don't have a lot of family or you don't have someone who would just be your go-to caregiver as you age, if you were to need that caregiver, I think it's I think it's wise to try to get some some insurance. Yeah, and it really it's a family thing. A lot of financial planning topics you just handle on your own or with your mm-hmm. spouse or internal. But this is a topic that really has to involve the whole family. I don't know if I've said this previously on the show, but when my mother-in-law was bedridden for the last four or five months of her life, two sisters came into town. My wife is local, so they all just took turns taking care of everything. One sister in particular really did the lion's share of the work, but that means everything. Cooking, cleaning, changing diapers, and everything. Mm -hmm. If the family's willing to do that, 
and can, both willing and able, great. But if not, some other arrangement has to be made. Right, and that's why you have to have that conversation. Right, and every long-term care insurance salesman will say this, so it's a bit of a shtick, but it's true. Like, do you want your kids changing your diapers or not? My mother-in-law was perfectly fine with that, right. but some people don't want that situation. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and our final stat, 58% of Americans, this comes from Caring.com, 58% of Americans don't have a will or living trust. Right. Um, also a problem. Um, a lot of people think, well, I don't need a will, I don't have too many assets, you know, what's the point? Wills are expensive. So let's actually, on our last episode, I think we debunked stuff. Let's debunk that. Unless you have a particularly complex estate, you can get a will drawn up for a few hundred bucks. Um, it's a pretty good investment because without a will um, or without any sort, without a living trust or a will, basically, you get no say over what happens to your assets when you pass. Um, but more so than that, you get, if you have minor children um, and you pass, you need to spell out who's going to care for them. You know, when my husband and I were uh, putting together our wills a while ago, we actually had to update our wills once, um, once we had additional children. I remember, you know, joking with my brother and sister saying like, all right, so how are we going to do this? Like, will you each take one and you'll split the third, you know, or <laughs> like, like, who's going to do it? But it's actually, I mean, it's an important thing to document. Mm-hmm. Without that, it's like, it's, it's scary to think about what might happen. Forget about your assets, what might happen to your children. Um, pets, you know, um, Obviously, you know, some pets live longer than others, but I have a family member who has, is it a turtle or a tortoise? I think it's technically a tortoise. Um, it's going to outlive her. <laughs> so, wow. so, yeah, so, you know, so you need to make arrangements for these things. And then the other Are side. Are you getting the tortoise? No, no. <laughs> well, okay. I don't think I was offered the tortoise. I, I don't know that I wouldn't take the tortoise. It's pretty cool, but um, I'd have to spend more time with it to see how we how we really vibe. Well, yeah, because you're going to be together for a while. Yeah, I mean, apparently, yeah. you know. Um, you know, and, and the other thing, too, is that um, if you don't have, if you don't do any sort of estate planning, um, you'll basically be leaving your family members to wing it uh, in the event that you become incapacitated or something happens to you health-wise, you know. So that's another important piece of the puzzle. Like, what directives do you want to give? Do you want to be put on life support? You know, that's those mm-hmm. are, those. you know, the, I think a big reason why people don't do more estate planning. I don't think it's the money because it can be done relatively cheaply. I think it's the discomfort of having those conversations and of actually contemplating, you know, one's own mortality. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a scary and sobering thought, but it has to be done. Right. Yeah. And uh, another stumbling block is just who do you go to, right? And, and it, it shouldn't be just any attorney. Can I, if you know any other financial professionals, your financial planner, your accountant, they probably have people they can recommend couple other websites. You could visit the National Association of Estate Planners and Councils or the American College of Trusts and Estate Councils. So those are attorneys who, spe- who specifically specialize right. in estate planning. And that's right. definitely something you want. And I do recommend talking to someone about it because they do have these really cheap programs online, like Willmaker, I think Willmaker or something along right. those lines, where you can, you know, for 60 bucks, you can like plug in your, your name and, you know, there you go, you have, a, you have a will. But there's a lot more to it than that. I do, so I do think some professional guidance along these lines is, is, is worth paying a little bit of money for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we've said on the show before, it's not a one and done type of thing, as you mentioned. You right. do have to update it every time you have a significant life change, move to a different state, and you got to let people know where to find it. 
I was just thinking right. as we were preparing, I'm like, okay, I know, I know my dad's attorney, so if something happens to him, my mom's attorney has been her attorney for decades and recently passed away because oh, yeah. she's my mom's age right. and they're in their 80s. I'm like, oh my God, i got to find out who right. the new attorney is. And the tricky thing about wills is that it's not like you file them you know, with the state or anything like that. Right. So it's not like you can just, your family members can go, da, 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 like, let's access the will. It's, you can almost like end up on a scavenger hunt of sorts. for. Right. Will. So in addition to creating a will, I would also advise people to tell some trusted people where to find that will. You could put it, you know, if you buy one of those like fireproof safes, you could store one there. You just obviously have to share the combination with someone. Mm-hmm. Other people will say that a uh, safety deposit box in a, at a, you know, in a bank is a good bet, but that can actually be a little complicated because then you need to make sure that whoever you want to give access to your will has access mm. to that safety deposit box. So that's not necessarily the best way to go. That is what we did. We have ours in a safety deposit box. And I'm pretty sure we're going through the, we, we either did or are going to go through the process of giving someone access to it, but that's actually a note to self to. Right. <laughs> we're all going through this, being like, oh, I got to get that. on that. Oh, right, that. right. That yeah. 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 Right. Nobody's perfect. Nope. We all have these things we have to do too. So I give advice. I just don't always take advice. You know? uh, don't we all? <laughs> don't we all? All right. So our listeners, I like to think of as a pretty financially savvy bunch, or they're at least on their way there. Um, and so a lot of the stats we talked about maybe don't apply to them, but they probably have loved ones that are in financial situations where they need help. So do you guys have advice for our listeners who maybe want to help another person in their life? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, just kind of sharing some of the information that we talked about now, you know, a lot of people don't realize why not having a will is problematic. A lot of people don't realize why not having long-term care insurance is problematic. Most people know that not having $400 in the bank is is problem. So I don't think there's like, I don't think that's too hard to sell. Um, But just to make people more, you know, make your loved ones more aware of some of the costs slash consequences you might face by not taking some of these steps. And then, you know, our buddy Bro here gave these great resources, you know, where you can access information if, you know, for example, if you're struggling with student debt or if you're, you know, if you want information on how to find an estate planning attorney, um, just share that information. It's important stuff. Yeah, I think the problem for a lot of people comes down to knowledge and time. So they feel like they don't know how to do it and they have, don't have the time to figure it out. So the more you can help them get over those obstacles, the better. The times when I've helped generally younger people decide on opening an IRA, which to me would sound very easy, but they have so many questions that are pretty complicated mm-hmm. if you don't know what you're doing. So right. even helping them open the account, maybe even to the, to the degree you're legally allowed to, open the account for them, find the estate attorney, if you have the extra money, pay for the attorney, or maybe open the emergency fund account, seed it with five hundred to a thousand dollars to get them going. We right. spoke in a previous episode about how more people save retirement if they're automatically enrolled in their four hundred one k. So if you get some, like get said, you know what? Come on over, bring your four hundred one k forms or breathing IRA forms. I'll help you sign up. We'll do something really basic: target date, fund, index fund, something. But just right. get them going because mm-hmm. if you don't know or you don't have the time. It can seem a little bit overwhelming. Really daunting, right. Yeah. Some people are afraid of paperwork. They just get, I mean, I, I actually, I hate paperwork. I, I recently spent about three hours of my life filling out camp forms for my three kids. <laughs> so, so I know that, you know, just filling out paperwork itself is a barrier. But had I had someone sitting next to me saying, hey, we'll do this together, I mean, it probably wouldn't have gone any quicker. It would have been more pleasant. So I think when you're talking about something inherently unpleasant, like 
creating a will. I think that's it's important to have that support. Yeah, yeah. I found that uh, similar to how you said when you have these life events, you need to update your will. That it's when we have these major life events that we're also more open to receiving outside advice yeah. and help. Right? right. So if someone's graduating from high school, if someone's graduating from college, if they're getting married, if they're having kids, right. that's when people who don't always think about money are suddenly tuned into like, oh yeah, I should really think about money. And so my advice would be using those windows of opportunity um, to take advantage and talk to people about money when they're most open to it. Absolutely. All right. All well, right. I guess that's the show. Mari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for allowing me into the studio once again. It was oh, great. it's right. And so for our listeners who want to get more from Maury Backman, they can go to fool.com. You write a few columns, a few articles probably a week for fool.com, and they also end up on USA Today and places like that. Yeah, they kind of get scattered all over the internet, so you could probably just Google my name and find them, but fool.com is your is your main source. Yeah, so if you want more scary or fascinating more stuff. Maury. <laughs> more Maury. More of Maury. More of Maury. You can head to fool.com. That's should be a thing. Can we make that That's a thing? A we're going to brand it. We're going to brand it. It's more Maury. We're going to need a little theme jingle. Yeah. Rick can do that. Yeah. I think you just did it. <laughs> I think you just did it. Yeah. I can do it better. Uh, all right. Maury, thank you so much for joining us. Come back again someday, huh? Thank you. I'd love to. Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. When it's time to make a hire for your small business, naturally, you want to find the best person for the job. And odds are that person is on LinkedIn. We are hiring like cuckoo crazy here at The Motley Fool right now, and we know the value of efficiently finding the best new hire for the job. And People come to LinkedIn every day to learn and advance their careers, so LinkedIn understands what they're interested and looking for, which means when you use LinkedIn Jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than a resume. Your LinkedIn Jobs matches are based on skills and backgrounds, sure, but also interests, activities, and passions. Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant, qualified candidates for your role. That way, you can focus on the candidates you want to spend time talking to and make a quality hire you're excited about. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Okay, bro. So while I was stumbling around the internet this week, I came across an old article in the Washington Post from 2016, so not that old, about an unusual test to reveal how smart you are. Do you want to do it with me? Oh, boy. Okay. No, it's fine. It's fine. Here's how it works. I'm going to give you this dice. There's a dice. I'm going to turn my back. I'm not going to look. And you're going to roll the dice and then tell me what you rolled. And I will give you five imaginary dollars for rolling the dice, just for doing it, just for your trouble. I'll give you five dollars. But depending on how high you roll, I'll give you more money. So I'll give you 20 bucks for rolling a six, for example. Okay. So, all right, I'm going to close my eyes. You're going to roll your dice, and then you're going to tell me what you got. (laughs) Okay. What'd you get? A one. Guess what, bro? What? (laughs) I knew you were going to pass this test. I'm smart. (laughs) So, I know you didn't lie to me because you said a one. You didn't even lie a little bit. This experiment was conducted by Bradley Ruffle and Yusuf Tobel of the Jerusalem College of Technology. They set up a booth in a mall. And they gave people five bucks. Just come. Here's five bucks. Go into this booth behind this curtain, roll a dice, and then come out and tell us what you rolled. So they go in. They roll it. They come back out. They tell them what they rolled. Now, they also asked them about their background, whether they considered themselves honest, whether they thought honesty was important. They asked them if they were employed, how much money they earned, whether they were religious. They also gave them a quick intelligence test. 
So out of all those attributes, brain power stood out because smarter people were less likely to lie about the number they rolled. Oh, okay. So considering a six-sided die has an equal chance of landing on either side, only 16.6% of people should say it landed on a six. But people who scored lower on intelligence said they scored a six almost 50% of the time. Oh my goodness gracious. All right, but smart people still lied. They just fudged a little. (laughs) So smarter people were either honest or they would say they rolled a four or a five as opposed to rolling a six. Wow. So the researchers wondered, why are less intelligent people more likely to lie and why are smarter people sheepish about lying or more likely just to lie a little bit? And they suggested that maybe smarter people might have been more suspicious of the whole setup. They might have guessed that this was just a game to test their honesty. Uh, They might have wondered if there was a camera watching them. There wasn't. Or they might have suspected that there was some secret punishment. And what about the smarty pants who lied a little? Well, the researchers are thinking that maybe lying just a little helps us lie to ourselves that we are cheaters. So we still want to believe that we're good people. So maybe if we lie a little, we still are. Or lying a little helps us believe that we'll more likely get away with it. This isn't a definitive test, of course. Um, and honestly, I didn't need a dice to tell me that you're honest and smart. Oh, uh, well, now what if I had rolled a six? Where would we be then? Huh? I guess I could show it to you and prove it. But <laughs> everyone would be very suspicious of me. Very suspicious. Nah, I already knew. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> All right, that's the show. It's taped honestly by Heather Horton, but edited remotely by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Uh, Hey, I'll just end with one more happy birthday, bro. Thank you very much.